Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Frank Jacob, Professor of Global History at Nord University. We're discussing the edited volume, Wallerstein 2.0, Thinking and Applying World Systems Theory in the 21st Century. This volume takes up the ideas of sociologist Emanuel Wallerstein and applies them to our current world. Frank, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me and giving me the opportunity to present this new publication to a broader audience. Of course. And, you know, before before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, I am, what do you say, a jack of many trades, maybe. I started as a, a person in Japanese studies. So I worked on a historical topic, but I got my uh, doctoral degree, my first one in Japanese studies with a historical comparison of right-wing secret or less secret societies in Germany and Japan. That's uh, the Tula Society for Germany and the Amur Society, or very often mistranslated as Black Dragon Society um, in Japan. And then I worked outside of the university for a year and a half. And then I got a job as an assistant professor in Germany, Wissenschaftlicher Assistent for modern history. Then I spent four years in the CUNY system in New York City as an assistant professor tenure track for world history since 1500, which is also very broad defined or broadly defined. And then in 2018, I got a tenured full professorship in Norway, where I'm now. Officially, it's a global history of the 19th and 20th century, but uh, they are happy and uh, give me sufficient freedom to do whatever I like. (laughs) I'm still working on Japanese history and Japanese popular culture, in particular film, but I also work uh, most dominantly at the moment on revolution theory and comparative history of revolutions, as well as transnational anarchism and there in particular on Emma Goldman. So it's a broad variety of fields I'm active in and uh, Wallerstein or the book we're talking about was rather a little accident. I would say um, there was a genuine interest uh, by myself that was shared with other colleagues. So we started with a little workshop. What could we do with Wallerstein in the 21st century, especially since uh, the review was discontinued and the center in Birmingham was closed? So we thought, is there um, a possibility to, in a way, reinvigorate curiosity about Wallerstein and what could people from different disciplines do with his theoretical thinking and how could we apply that to our own research? So we were a very interdisciplinary group dealing with uh, different fields and different topics, but we all had the mission uh, to think about what can we do with Wallerstein in a theoretical sense and how can we interpret that for our own theoretical 
considerations or topics we are involved in. So for those who, who have never heard the name before, uh, who, who is Emanuel Wallerstein? Everyone knows him as a famous sociologist, but he started out as a historian working on African history. Um, he was um, born and raised in New York City, graduated uh, three times from Columbia with a BA, MA and PhD. Then also worked at Columbia for a while, but in the 60s was a rather what he would refer to himself as a political sociologist and very pro-student in a time where that was not uh, so convenient as somebody who worked for the university. And then he left the United States for a couple of years, uh, went to Canada and taught at McGill, and then eventually went or came back to New York State to SUNY Binghamton, where he uh, was director for the Brodell Center. And uh, there he tried to, in a way, interdisciplinary connect theoretical approaches from sociology, history, and other fields, cultural studies, I would say, in a broader sense, and uh, was very influential. Um, as somebody who is very much linked to world systems theory, he was not alone in formulating this. There are other scholars from around the globe, Samir Amin, for example, or Giovanni Arigi or Andre Gunda Frank, who also played an important role in setting up world systems theory. But Wallerstein's name and his four books about the topic he wrote over a long period of time are technically what is considered uh, world systems theory or world systems analysis. And he also published uh, The Essential Wallerstein in later years, which has a collection of all the essential texts he wrote about the topic, which is very convenient. Um, I think it's also in open access now and gives you a survey of this development of thinking. So he really tried to explain how the world turned into the world we know today. And uh, his world systems theory or analysis is uh, something I would consider a valuable tool for all kinds of um, systematic approaches to explain larger um, developments from a global perspective. You saw that. Uh there wasn't much work being done on Wallerstein, so you thought that it might be time to to take a, another look at him and, and and reinvigorate some of his thoughts and ideas. Can you talk about the process about it coming out and you know some of the contributors to this book, how how that actual actual process of making this book came came about? In 2018, I just contacted a few friends, colleagues, people I knew who had or might have an interest in Wallerstein and asked them if they were available for a little workshop to brainstorm what one could do with Wallerstein, especially since the interest seemed to be lacking at that time. Now there are a couple of books published or in preparation, so that's very nice. And I hope that will stimulate the process. So I got some positive feedback by people that they had never worked about Wallerstein, but were interested in trying to see where his work could uh, turn their work or bring their work or influence their work. And uh, therefore, we had a little gathering. Unfortunately, then in 2019, it was, um, or in 2020, I think it was online due to the pandemic. We couldn't meet in person, 
but uh, we decided to stay in touch and we also decided after the workshop that it might be interesting to publish something um, which we wanted to publish in open access from the beginning because we considered this something like a, a stimulus for a further discussion. So we didn't want to present the essential Wallerstein, which had been presented already, but rather some theoretical reflections. What could we do in different fields in social sciences and humanities with Wallerstein's legacy or with uh, Wallerstein's theoretical considerations? And then we found a publisher in Bielefeld, Transcript. They were interested and had the possibilities to publish it in open access, which is also part of the Norwegian research policy to preferably publish research results in open access so that everyone can simply download it. Same goes for the book. If you're interested in Wallerstein 2.0 or 2.0, you can just download the book everywhere for free. And uh, that was important for us because we really didn't want to present something that is written in stone, but we rather wanted to present something that gives some kind of, yeah, triggers some interest in Wallerstein again and probably also a discussion because that is probably one of the things that Wallerstein's impact on research had been. He stimulated a lot of critical discussion over the years. And no matter if you like, world systems theory or not, people are usually familiar with it and uh, there are multiple ways to gain from uh, that familiarity, I would say. So now that now that we have some background on the project uh, and on, on Wallerstein, the man himself, uh, could you share with listeners what world systems theory is exactly? Obviously, it, it's it's hard to, to sum it up in, in one sentence. So, uh, you know, it, just to, to help uh, help um, listeners get get a little bit at the idea. Like, what 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 you mean exactly by world systems theory? It's an attempt to explain the formation of the modern capitalist world through expansion and the division of the world in three different spheres: the center, which exploits the periphery. And in between, there is a semi-periphery, which I would consider some kind of sphere of control and a sphere that separates the core and the center from each other to avoid a direct clash of interest or conflict. Uh, but that depends on the interpretation. And Wallerstein used this to describe um, the development of the modern world according to those different spheres. So the core sphere would uh, usually be the industrialized nation states of the West, uh, of the so-called West, while the periphery were, for example, former colonies or colonies that turned into independent nation states later that had been exploited for raw materials or during the uh, international slave trade and so on. So Wallerstein tried to really present this um, almost like a master narrative for the creation and the functionality of the modern world. And um, in contrast to approaches about um, polarities or bipolarities or multipolarities that are currently also discussed with regard to the antagonism between China and the US, I think 
this world system theory offers a different kind of understanding for conflicts that evolved out of uh, that conflict between the different spheres within the capitalist world system. Is it accurate to think of world systems theory as a sort of a extension or application of Marxism? Uh, or is there a sort of a break in its theoretical approach? Yeah, I would say there is a Marxist element to it because the world system also represents class struggle, not on a national, but on an international level. That means uh, if we go back to Marx and say all history is the history of class struggle, then the world system is also a history of class struggle on the global scale because the center exploits the periphery across national borders. That means the rich part of the world is uh, technically um, exploiting the poor people, something that might have shifted with regard to where the periphery actually is located, but something that is recreated again and again. And usually it is uh, the attempt of people living in the periphery to become part of the semi-periphery or part of the center which also plays into the history of migration because with better possibilities to travel and mobility, you can actually pinpoint or go through the separation between those different spheres today, which makes it more fluid in a way from an individual perspective. Um, it is definitely influenced by Marxist considerations, and I would rather describe Wallerstein as somebody who leaned towards the left than anything else. But it is not um, something that you can only use if you want to explain history and the world at large in Marxist terminologies. That means even non-Marxists can live with Wallerstein and apply Wallerstein. There's an essay in the beginning of the collection looking at the, the kind of the difference between world history and global history. Um, and, and I was wondering if you break down the difference between world history versus global history and why this is why this distinction is important. Yeah, I will try to do that quite shortly. If you're interested in that, take a look take, at take, take it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I argue in that uh, essay that pre-Wallersteinian world system history is world history. That means it's the history of the creation of the world system, so the history leading to the creation of the world system, while global history that rather looks at networks, interconnections, or interfunctionalities is the attempt to describe how this capitalist world system is actually working. Now there will be 50% of global historians who say, what the heck is he talking about? because they say global history existed uh, all the time. Every history is global because it happens on the globe and it is interconnected. Mm, yes, in a way, but I'm not so sure. Of course, there is trade that is global and you can purchase goods from Asia in the Roman Empire without any problem. But very often there is no intentional connection. It is based on a lot of uh, intermediaries that are mobile, like the pastoralist uh, societies in the Steppe and so on and so on. So the real system that allows global interactions on purpose, that means people start um, somewhere in the Philippines on a journey around the globe with a purpose to make profit, that is possible in the existent world system. 
And this is the history of the functionality of this global uh, perspective or this global knowledge or global technology or global market, or however you describe that. So to break it down, I would say that world history ends with the establishment of Wallerstein's world system, capitalist world system, and then global history really begins. But uh, with regard to that, I must say, uh, this is how I would understand and explain it. And I know that there are a lot of people in global history who would disagree. There are, uh, there, there's another essay that you wrote in here too, looking at, at, at revolutions and applying Wallerstein's uh, world systems theory to revolution theory. And I was, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about uh, how Wallerstein's work helped you uh, understand uh, revolutions and and what what other people that study revolutions might benefit from from Wallerstein's work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I worked uh, especially on the Russian Revolution before when Emma Goldman went to Russia. She was also or Soviet Russia. She was also surprised that the revolution didn't work out. And uh, many Marxists at that time were also surprised that the revolution actually took place in Russia and not in France or Germany, where they expected it with the strong industrial proletariat. So combining this work about the Russian Revolution and this discourse that this is not a true revolution in the Marxist sense, because it happened in a backward, in quotation marks, backward society that was not ready for revolution, made me think, um, where do revolutions actually occur? And in which kind of way could Wallerstein help me explaining that? And uh, in that regard, I think that uh, the semi-periphery is particularly revolutionary because that's the meeting space for the periphery where you can fall back to the periphery and at the same time you have the chance to advance to the core. So here is the biggest clash between the two different poles of the world system. And uh, while the semi-periphery is in a way, an outcome of the attempt to control the periphery, giving hope to people that they might socially advance, although not yet to the core. This conflict between the two powerful spheres on both ends creates this revolutionary ambition to advance to the core and not to fall back to the periphery at the same time and thereby might stimulate a revolutionary potential in regions that would, from a revolution theory point of view, be considered not ready for revolution because they are not having an industrial proletariat after in, or a post-industrialized industrial proletariat, but they rather have um, yeah, uh, an agrarian structure sometimes with some developing industrial assets as well. So it's not really ready in the theoretical sense for a Marxist revolution, yet especially in those environments, revolutions seem to be particularly numerous in the 20th century. And um, I will continue those studies about uh, revolutions, especially with a comparative model I try to develop and I looked at the Atlantic revolutions. So the United States, France, and what would later become Haiti. And here as well, do we have um, some kind of semi-periphery? If we look at the colonial society of Saint-Domingue, we have 
um, a planter's elite that wants to be independent and wants to replace uh, the faraway elite in France. At the same time, we have a very um, cash crop oriented structure that creates colonial diversity that would later also stimulate the revolutionary process. So here, if we use Wallerstein's approach or Wallerstein's world systems theory and consider that the semi-periphery is particularly revolutionary, it makes sense to follow that up. And it's also when you look at the color revolutions at the end of the Soviet Union that uh, happened or appeared to question the post-Soviet future of nation states that had just been formed. They are also very peripheral from a Moscow point of view. So here it makes sense to combine the two. So the semi-periphery as an attempt to suppress revolutionary unrest, but at the other hand, the semi-periphery as a, yeah, you would say as a hotbed for revolutionary thought that is stimulated by the access to something that is considered poor and the fear to return to something that is considered periphery. The hunger alone is not something that stimulates revolution. Poverty alone is not something that stimulates revolution. So what stimulates revolution is the coexistence of possible social advance and possible social decrease at the same time. So you're in the middle of what you want and what you fear. And this, in a way, turns the wheels, I think, towards a revolutionary process. And I will have to deal with more case studies to come back to that, but uh, I will definitely keep Wallerstein in mind when I work on that in the future as well, because um, it's also, um, I mean, Wallerstein was also in contact with a lot of people who worked on dependency theory or development theory, like under development as a planned strategy of suppression and stuff like that. So it's uh, very interesting to combine those thoughts with revolution theory in the future, I would say. I was wondering if there's, you know, if you wanted to say anything at all about the other contributors, what it was like working with them, where their expertise is. I know, I know you are a professor of global history, um, but what, what were these other contributors? Uh, what are their, their posts? Yeah, we have Stephen Shapiro, for example, who is a professor for global literature at Warwick University in the UK. And he had rather a cultural and uh, liter literature-based perspective on that. While we also have a semiotician, Judita Bassano from uh, Rome, who works on semiotics and nationalism, and he rather looks at um, the sign language of world system. We had uh, James Horncastle from Simon Fraser University who wrote about migration as a migration world system that exists. Of course, there is the core where migrants want to be. There is the periphery where migrants usually start out their journey. And then there's the semi-periphery that is supposed to be like a control or control spot or has a control function within this migration system. That's on the one hand Greece, where he is an expert for, but that would also be talks with... Um, North African countries at the moment that receive money from the EU, for example, to become an outpost of defense of the fortress of Europe. So here, those countries are upgraded in a way 
to semi-periphery as a consequence of the pressure, the demographic pressure from migration, especially from the global south. And similar things um, can be observed in other parts of the world. So here one would technically use Wallerstein's world systems analysis concept and use it as a frame to describe something that happens on a global scale. And there are obviously different players that would be the core, this, um, the periphery and a new semi-periphery that is created as a consequence of those considerations. It would be similar when we talk about um, the stationing of troops around the globe or the cooperation of governments with uh, states that would then be considered semi-peripheral to, in a way, create a buffer zone between uh, enemies, for example, or different blocks. And here again, there is the question in how far can world systems theory be applied to describe that. In many cases, it is possible, I would say, and uh, the colleagues agreed on that. And we also had Sebastian Engelmann from the Pädagogische Hochschule, that's um, a pedagogical university in Karlsruhe, who wrote about education theory in that setting of a global world system in which exchanges are um, determined by such considerations. And uh, it is interesting to see what people from different fields make out of Wallerstein. And I think that was, for me, the best experience of that book uh, while editing it to see that there are so many possibilities to apply that that goes just beyond this economic interpretation, which of course is important, but as you said, is also very often uh, pushed toward a Marxist corner and said, oh yeah, that's Marxism and we don't want to talk about it. I think Wallerstein has so much more to offer than that if one is open for... Um, a practical application and a practical thinking of what Wallerstein means in the 21st century. I mean, we already talked about um, increased mobility. So the world is much more global than it used to be, um, let's say, in the 1800s, definitely. In the 1900s, you could already travel if you uh, had enough money and time, of course. But uh, today, it's much easier to travel long distance if you have um, a fracture of the money you needed uh, before. So this also is reshaping the world system. And there seems to be a struggle about where is the position of individual nation states within this kind of world system. And um, especially in Southeast Asia, I think there is a larger initiative to overcome the semi-peripheral status to become part of the core, to be economically powerful. And uh, this also comes uh, with different pressure from different sides. Of course, your own population, then international politics. And uh, there are also talks about reconfiguring the existing world system politically with regard to the role of the UN and who has a say there. Uh, so we see this kind of transformation, and I think we will always have to come back to Wallerstein to a certain degree to not only observe, but also to comment on the things that are happening. A, a constant theme throughout all the, the essays was 
an approach or, or just a, a focus on nationalism and how nationalism might be conceived using Wallerstein's frameworks. So I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, nationalism, how, uh, how, to, how to think about it in Wallerstein's framework and how some of uh, your colleagues approached the question of nationalism. Yeah, nationalism is uh, something we would usually uh, look at from a national perspective. So nationalism evolves somewhere and creates um, the idea of a nation that, or the idea creates the nationalism that is the attempt to create the nation state based on that idea of a nation. And uh, this is in a way also um, a neglect of the global world system. So everything is connected, yet I want to have a particular strong standing within the existing system. That means there's also a competition of nationalisms for resources that secure access to the poor. Or there is an anti-core nationalism, especially in the Chinese case, I would say that there is still this uh, story of China has been a victim of imperialism in the past and therefore deserves more access to uh, great power statues, natural resources, political influence, etc., etc., etc. So uh, nationalism is uh, truly part of the modern world system and it is probably um, an expression of the ambition to upgrade one's own position in the world system if you are not from the core. In the core, nationalism is a defense mechanism against the semi-periphery and the periphery because they should not be part of the core because they are not part of the nation, they are underdeveloped in quotation marks as it is often used, they are foreign in quotation marks so they cannot adopt to what the nation is considered to be. So if there is migration, which is as such something that in a way deflates the value of being in the core. If everyone had access to the core, the core wouldn't be something so special. And in that sense, nationalism is either in both forms. It is aggressive, but it is uh, an answer or let's say the claim to become core or the claim to advance in the existing world system while it is, at the other hand, a defense mechanism to prevent people to become core, because that would also deflate your own status. So if everyone is happy in the world, you could not be the happiest camper, naturally, in a way. And uh, in that regard, I think nationalism is an expression of the dynamics that take place within the existing world system. So with, with the release of Wallerstein 2.0, um, you know, what, what are you sort of hoping for or, you know, excited for for the future of Wallerstein studies? I would, first of all, hope that our students will read that and get some ideas and read Wallerstein because then, I mean, Wallerstein left so much writing that uh, it can fill many days and many weeks and many months to read it. And if they like Wallerstein or not is not important for me as long they as long as they are critically inspired in one way or the other. And I think this uh, book eventually is just giving like a few hints. Look, if you look at Wallerstein in that perspective or if you apply it that way, there could be something of interest for you. 
So for my students in Norway, I always um, try to explain them the difference between world and global history as well. So they will read that chapter for sure. But a lot of them, since the book is in open access, there is no limitation. And uh, once they are intrigued and want to learn more about Wallerstein, they can just continue to do so. And I would hope that um, there is more interest in those topics again, since we are living in a global world, no matter how strong nationalisms or populist nationalisms currently are, we cannot solve world problems or global problems on a national scale. So it makes sense to look at the world system as such and how we could probably reform it before it causes more evolutions in the near future. And um, to avoid those revolutions, we would need a reform of the existing world system. If that is possible by anti-capitalist measures, I'm skeptical. Um, but there are possibilities. But to do that, one has to understand how it works. And for that purpose, I also think that it is important that Wallerstein is perceived broader beyond the discipline and beyond science. And that was also another reason why we uh, hope for an open access publication, because that everyone can read. And you don't have to spend a dime to download it and get some impressions about it. And uh, I think uh, it is also written in a way that people who never read Wallerstein before will be able to gain an insight into the most critical elements of his theoretical work and then probably go on um, to the Wallersteinian texts or primary sources, so to speak, in that perspective. Yes, definitely. Uh, you know, as far as as far as your work, obviously, you know, you, you, you talked about your work on so many uh, different things. Is there anything uh, new that you're working on uh, nowadays? Uh, there's always something new I'm working on. Uh, I'm currently working on multiple projects. So I just finished uh, the first volume of this comparative approach to revolutions. Volume one was uh, the Atlantic Revolution. So I'm also trying to follow Wallerstein in his footsteps, not with regard to the quality of the book, but with uh, the extension of the books or the number of the volumes. So this is a three-volume project, which looks at, at uh, revolutions as a global struggle for modernity. And after volume one, I'm now dealing with the revolutions of the long 19th century, especially the European revolutions, and then the anti-imperialist revolutions in the 20th century. And if the publisher allows me, there will be a fourth volume on the revolutions in the 21st century, which then will probably be half over. So I have a good uh, time to cover. And um, in that regard, I will gain more from Wallerstein, but I'm also finishing a manuscript right now on uh, Walter Rodney, Black Power and Revolution, which is also very close to Wallerstein. Both knew each other, both were in contact. I think Wallerstein invited Rodney uh, to stay at Binghamton for a while. And uh, a lot of the elements you find in Wallerstein, you can also see in Rodney's writing, although he didn't call it world systems analysis, but under development theory. So uh, that is something I want to finish soon. And then who knows, you know, as a curious researcher you always find something you're interested in 
and uh, the topic of revolution is so broad um, that it always gives you a possibility to ditch into something new. I just finished a chapter on revolution and time that turned out so, uh, I want to say that in quotation marks, brain fucking that I have to think more about that and probably will write a book at one point. But uh, that's something, as long as you have fun doing it, uh, you should do it. And uh, there are obviously people who read it and that makes me very happy all the time. Yeah, I think there, there's the saying, if you have fun writing it, someone will have fun reading it, uh, yep. which I definitely believe is, believe to be, to be true. Like I, you, you can, you can always tell when someone is really passionate about what they're writing about. Um, and sometimes, you know, if someone, you know, sometimes it feels like it's just paint by numbers where they're kind of following a script and they're just doing it because they feel like they have to versus because of a legitimate interest in the subject. Yep. Uh, well, Frank, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. The, the book is Wallerstein 2.0, Thinking and Applying World Systems Theory the 21st century. Um, and for those who are, who are looking to find it, uh, if they're looking for for that, if they want to download it and, and read it, do they just search Wallstein 2.0 as their particular website they should go to? Yeah, they can um, find the book. I think it's distributed in the US um, by Columbia University Press. Yeah, but I saw that. Yeah. If you just uh, copy paste the title and put it in, you will either find it on ResearchGate or Academia, or you will find it on the German publisher side where you can just click download PDF and then you have it. So please read it, but please don't spend any money on it. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not worth the $35 it is uh, available for, but uh, it is better if you spend your money on important things and use uh, the scientific literature that is provided for free. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much. Thank you very much.